Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always, and today we have on Patrick Newman. But first, I'm going to ask again, hook your boy up with a five-star review. It means a lot. helps this show move forward. As you can imagine, booking guests, editing, all this stuff takes time, energy, effort, and we'd love to hear from you to keep us going. So if you could, drop us a five-star review. So today I have on Patrick Newman, who is the author of Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in Early America, 1607 through 1849. Of course, we'll link to all of this in the show notes. He is also um, a fellow at the Mises Institute, an assistant professor of economics at Florida Southern College, um, and he completed his PhD from George Mason University. Okay, all of that to the show notes. Check it out. Drop the five star. Now enjoy my interview with Dr. Patrick Newman. Dr. Newman, welcome to the War Room. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so you are talking about one of my favorite subjects in your, in your new book, cronyism. What got you interested in this subject? I've been interested in, in cronyism, you know, this history of special interest uh, policies in the United States. Since I've been interested in economics, but I was approached uh, by a prominent donor of the Mises Institute, Hunter Lewis, to write a book on the history of crony capitalism, and that's what got me started uh, with this, you know, current, uh, uh, you know, book, book, uh, book series, if you will. So writing about all the special interest policies and the ways politicians and businesses have been, you know, corrupting the government. You go back to 1607, so yeah. even before yeah. the formation of the U.S. Mm -hmm. which... Yeah, I, yeah. I start I start early on, um, and that's really just the first chapter. Just kind of brings us up to the Revolutionary War. Um, in in that regard, my decision uh, was based off of Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty series. I edited the last volume. He covered 1607 to 1789. And I basically try to cover the bulk of that uh, in about two chapters. So um, I spend much more time on the early 1800s uh, yeah. in the book. Yeah, it's just it's just funny because it's you know you would think ah oh, America 1776 and it's like no 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 there's this whole history that led up to all that as well and and that's that's tied into the to the um the concept of cronyism obviously um would I would guess you would agree would go back to as far back as to when. There's been governments who have had power and there's been business who's trying to influence that power and work together like that. That's that goes way back into history. Correct. Absolutely. Cronyism has, has been around since the government, really, since governments have been around the, the the actual history of governments. Usually the justification given for why governments form is it's some sort of social contract theory. Everyone in the town gets together they decide to relinquish some of their freedoms in return for protection from, um, you know, a, a government and, you know, so on and so forth. In reality, since the beginning, the, the Middle Ages, ancient Roman times, et cetera, governments arose through conquest. One group of people conquers another group, and then they impose rules on them for their benefit at the public's expense. So cronyism has been around uh, throughout most of America, uh, throughout most of not only American history, but just human history. Yeah, to me, the frustrating thing is it feels like cronyism is, atta is attached to capitalism. And it's like, well, okay, sure, yes, but but the more government control you have, the more cronyism you 
you have. Like it, it necessitates almost cronyism uh, the more you get involved because the more you centralize power and authority, um, the people who are trying to make money understand that they have to go through that power and authority uh, authority to make money. And so um, I don't know why it's always pitched, at least in the, in the, in the popular culture, as capitalism and cronyism, whereas you know, socialism or communism would, would be far more um, uh, involved in cronyism, I would think. Absolutely. This is a major reason why I just stuck with the term cronyism rather than crony capitalism, how it's often uh, phrased. And when I was doing research on this and, and just working through my other you know, research on cronyism, et cetera, um, really initially crony capitalism, I said, well, one, when we call it crony capitalism, it's sort of an indictment of capitalism or making it seem as if it's, if it's part and parcel or it's a type of capitalism, when in reality, it's, it's different than capitalism. The free market, aka you know, how I would define capitalism, it doesn't have any sort of cronyism. Right. It's it's a the it's it, it there's there's no special interest policies because there's no coercive uh, agency known as the government imposing various rules. It's only when you introduce the government, when you introduce an agency that has a um, monopoly on um, on violence, right, a monopoly on the use of force, do you get uh, policies that benefit one group at the expense of another? And you, know, you can have crony socialism, crony communism, as you said. In fact, that's really the only ways they've manifested themselves in the real world. You just have a group of insiders running the government for their benefit while the rest of the country is impoverished. And when, when, you, when you take this perspective, you realize cronyism is, is, is separate from capitalism. And that's why I really tried to not use that term, um, even though a lot of people do use the, you know, they use the term crony capitalism. I, I think it has more problems um, uh, than, um, you know, than, than clarifications. Yeah. And so um, I've argued for some time that the, um, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is is a form of cronyism that the big corporations in the U.S. Uh, like for our government to make it illegal for U.S. citizens to go abroad and to pay bribes to foreign governments because they understand um, how to go set up all these various structures in various com- uh, countries and they can hire lawyers and accountants and all the loopholes they understand where someone like me, a small business owner, it, it's too much research, too much hassle. When I tell people that, they're like, oh, I don't think so. I don't know. And, and my point is, in this illustration, is that I think it's quite clear it's cronyism, um, but it's not apparent, maybe, that it's cronyism. You'd have to really stop and think through all the implications of this. So when you're researching a subject like this, how do you deduce what is pure cronyism or versus maybe just bad thought process, like bad ideology? Right. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. So one, I certainly agree with you on the Foreign Corrupt, uh, Corrupt Pro- um, uh, Practices Act. I believe that's the, that's the name of it. Um, there are always loopholes the way politicians can collect the donations, right? There's a loophole even with uh, regard to foreign governments or foreign businesses, right? It's not illegal for the other way for foreign governments and businesses to bribe our politicians or uh, they, or really bribe their family members um, or, uh, or or illegal for the CIA to bribe them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, there's, there's a great book by a great, uh, several great books by an economist, um, really a journalist, a writer, Peter Schweizer, who's written about this secret empires, you know, showing how, even though we have these laws saying, Oh, you can't directly bribe a politician. There's loopholes. You can't bribe the politician or their wife. 
or their spouse, but what about their son? You know, what about their best friend? Uh, they build, you know, that's how the, the, this, this, this corruption really occurs. And when you're trying to show something's crony, whether or not in the past or in the present, you have to do a lot of research. And in particular, you have to do a lot of historical research. And by that, I mean, you have to look at motivations. So what was the motivation for a politician uh, pushing for a certain law, right? The motivation they almost always give publicly is that the law promotes the public interest, right? It benefits everyone, right? We need these, we need the Paycheck Protection Program to save small businesses during this COVID crisis, blah, 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 blah. They're not going to say anything else because it's going to hurt with their election. But you got to look beneath the historical records, see what businesses, agencies they're connected with and so on to see that, well, okay, actually, uh, this law was, you know, sort of designed to be scooped up by large wealthy firms, um, you know, uh, legal legal practices, um, you know, large restaurant chains, et cetera, because they had all the abilities to make to get these loans from large banks. So you have to be a historian. And it doesn't mean you necessarily have to go to the archives and some, uh, you know, some dead president 200 years, but you have to, you have to be able to actually try and figure out what is someone's motivation, what is their actual motivation, not necessarily their public motivation, and that's how you can separate whether something is uh, designed to benefit special interests or it's just you know, a bad policy, as you said, and it causes unintended consequences. Well, and, and that's the other thing, right? So you have um, pure corruption where, you know, business, big business and, and government get in bed together and they craft laws, which directly uh, benefit certain groups over others. So you have that. But then you also have people who are just stupid and we elect a lot of stupid people. And so they just do stupid things. And so that's tough. And the other thing that you have is being in an environment shapes the way that you think so that you you're more prone to craft things in a certain way. And so you have all of these things that are working together. And the more you centralize power, the harder it is to escape any of them. So people in Washington, DC, how they view the world, um, especially on Capitol Hill is going to be far different than something like me in kind of a rural part of Texas, right? Because how I'm living, operating and the, the laws that would benefit or harm me is not the same thing in DC. So even if they do, try to go with the best of intentions because there's so much um, lobbying effort. It would seem to be hard for them to escape just the mentality of how things should be ran. Oh, absolutely. Your average voter, your average small business owner, your average consumer, there's an economic concept known as rational ignorance that describes uh, most people very well. It doesn't make sense to be informed. It doesn't pay, right? You have to take a lot of time and money to learn about the intricacies of the law. Mm -hmm. And on average, your vote isn't going to make that much of a difference. So it's a low benefit to being informed, but it's an extremely high cost uh, to, to being informed. On the other hand, you know, for politicians and for lobbyists and other you know, organizations looking to get favors, it's the reverse, right? You, you, you will spend the time and money hiring someone to just you know, search through various laws, find loopholes, et cetera, because then you do benefit. And especially as a politician, yeah, you, you do need to be very concerned about these things because that is your way to success, right? It's, 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 it's pushing for laws that will benefit people who are donating to you. And yeah, politicians do have, you know, some of them have these self-interested, I mean, excuse me, um, public interested motives, or they like to imagine themselves like that. That's how they sleep at night, so to speak. 
um, and you know, that, that, that's how they present themselves, you know, in, the, in reality, the, the system makes it much different. And in DC, if you want to advance as a politician, you have to push for these policies or else you're not going to get the types of career promotions you want. Similar with a large business, if you want to succeed, you have to play the political game, right? There's an old saying, if you're not ordering at the dinner table, then you're on the menu, right? If you're not pushing for special privileges, then your competitors will be. And that's just the brutal nature of politics. Okay, so I think we can all visualize how that works in 2022. But in this period, 1827, it would seem that there wasn't a lot of that. What was going on back then? And who were these special special interest groups? Yeah, so th- this is a this is a very important um, uh, point to mention that in early American history, we've had cronyism since the beginning. I, I talk about this, how it was related to the English colonies and then the, the various during the American Revolution and the various debates about, OK, what types of policies should we pursue? There were absolutely individuals who were pushing for cronyism. They did succeed at various points in time. We could go into those in more detail. But something that's very important that makes this period of early America different than the modern era is there was also a significant political opposition to cronyism. You had major political parties on the federal and state level, particularly the Jacksonian Democrats and the Jeffersonian Republicans. In many ways, they they fought against cronyism. Right. They were supported the free market. They weren't perfect. There are many issues with them. But by and large, they were against these types of special privileges. And this wasn't just a fringe third party movement or, you know, maybe an isolated politician not really able to uh, pursue any sort of meaningful reform. Uh, they did get change, particularly they, they, they did succeed in changing laws, particularly the Jacksonian Democrats. This is different than the modern era when you kind of just have two sort of crony parties. One party might have more or better rhetoric than the other party, the Republicans. I would say the Republicans, at least now, are better than the Democrats. But, you know, it's it's always, especially the, the ruling uh, individuals in power, it's always just kind of sort of two, cor- two corrupt organizations. You choose one of them or the other. All you're trying to do with the Republican Party kind of is sort of stem the tide, right? And that's what makes this era you know, uh, of, of the modern era, much different than say 200 years ago. Yeah. So one of the things, um, I was trying to find the book. I don't know. I've got a book laying around here about the, um, I believe it's called the Empress of China. Um, Empress of China, I think it's the ship name. Anyways, um, they sent a ship to China to begin trade, uh, with the Chinese right after the revolutionary war, because they didn't want to buy tea from the Brits because they were mad about, you know, the Brits. Yeah. And it, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a weird thing because it's kind of a quasi government business operation. And it's got a lot of oh, oh, overlap. If you were to look at that and those are the types of things that are tricky to the point is here's a thing that like, Oh, well, you know, we're mad at the Brits because of the revolutionary war and this, that, and the other. So we're going to go buy tea from China. Well, okay. If the market wants to do that, that's fine. But then having the government influence and shift might actually cost the consumers more. And so it's one of those things to where um, in that time, I don't know how people would have been able to track stuff like that because reporting was different. They didn't have the Internet. So you you talk about these people who have opposition to it. But how much 
was the average person able to sit down and think through these things? Because back then they, you know, they were working more manual labor jobs, didn't have access to information. So the average person, how much could they be tuned into this type of stuff? Oh, not, not, I'm not, not that much, right? They, they, they were tuned into the broad, I would say, ideological, you know, thrusts of certain things, but the average person was not, you know, keeping up with all the laws. Uh, They were farmer, uh, many of them, at least until the 1820s, you know, a good amount of them couldn't read or various forms of illiteracy. They themselves were, you know, they, they, they would really, as in the past, as in the present, your average person doesn't really form their own opinions. This might sound harsh, but they listen to elites or various dealers and ideas. Right. Right. And there's a spectrum of this. Right. So similar with, you know, an academic like myself, my ideas are being influenced by other academics or people higher on the totem pole than me. Well, then maybe I influence people lower on the totem pole. Right. And there's this sort of a division of labor in terms of how much you're following through with this. Uh, the, the important thing is that back then the elites were there was at least a significant amount of elites or pe- people in positions of influence that were actually following these uh, policies and were trying to stop them, right? Stop various special interest privileges and so on. And it's actually it, it's, it's really fascinating. Parties back then they got people to be interested in economic issues, right? Mm-hmm. Smaller government or bigger government largely by communicating uh, through them or communicating to them about issues that they could understand, cultural issues, right? Prohibition, um, immigration, uh, public or private schools. What type of Bible are you going to use in the school, right? The King James Bible, uh, you know, so on. And that was really how you got your average person to be interested in these types of policies, right? And that was sort of the main mechanism. It was through elites, both good and bad elites, crony and anti-crony elites, that their ideas filtered down to the public. So it's it's hard for me in 2022 to believe that the politicians had the the best interests of the people in mind. So when you say that they were pushing against cronyism, I would think, and this is just my cynicism, if someone came out today and said we're pushing against cronyism, I would think, oh, they're going to pass a bill that actually makes it easier for some group to get something. Yeah. So yeah. walk me off the ledge. Yeah. You, when you've done this research, like they were just good, good people back then, or was it just the ideology was so different? Like, why were they, why were the politicians back then not trying to consolidate power and push it against it? Because it seems like it could have been a lot easier to maneuver those things back in this period of time. Yeah. So you, you certainly did have politicians doing that, uh, but you also had other politicians that were not. And these politicians were one motivated by ideology. Right, ideology, the spirit of liberty, uh, that was a, a relatively new concept or just a challenging concept. And this was something that a lot of people were influenced by. Uh, there were new economic writings, uh, the free market ideas that were being explored at this time that did influence people. You undeniably had pecuniary motives, right? So a uh, politician pushing for lower tariffs, right? They could represent a district that had a lot of importers, uh, or them they themselves could be involved in a uh, company that imports goods, so they want low tariffs. You know that that did happen, right? So there were there were self interested motivations, and you know they they also in many cases they wanted to decentralize, so they wanted to shift some of the power from the federal to the state governments, 
But in doing so, it just made it harder for the state governments to get stuff done. It kind of when you have multiple competing jurisdictions, you can't do as much. But I I will say a big thing, and it's different from today, is ideology did matter um, more more back then, right? As opposed to now. And I do think ideology does matter now. I just think you you've seen sort of the the both parties kind of uh, sell out, if you will. Mm-hmm. Now that happened in in in, in the, the earlier period. It's a big theme of my book is that you have this battle between liberty and power, and that when reformers get in charge of the government, they do try to reduce the size of the government, but power does corrupt. Mm-hmm. Right? Once you're in charge of the government, then you say, okay, well maybe I need to moderate, but we got to look to this election. Well, now there's this constituency that we have to care for. And that did happen. Politicians got corrupted. Jeffersonians and Jacksonians absolutely got corrupted. So that that did occur. It's just the significant fact that at least I've found from the history is that there were so many people who were at least trying to stop that. Where nowadays, you don't even get that, right? right. Uh, that, 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 that spirit is gone. Mm. Okay. So you mentioned earlier uh, a few uh, you uh, interesting examples. Give us one or two from the book that were interesting uh, from your research. Yeah. One of, one of my favorite examples that I go through is, okay, why was the capital, the nation's capital, Washington, DC put where, uh, you know, it, it's currently, it's currently located, right? So when the, uh, the, the constitution was signed and in, in, in the, 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 rel- the, the second stage of, of the country, uh, began, um, the nation's capital was briefly in New York city. I'd been kind of moving around, and there, there was this big argument over debt assumption. Um, Hamilton, Secretary of the Treasury Hamilton, was pushing for debt assumption. Um, Southern states were against it. There was a compromise to say, okay, we're going to allow President Washington to choose somewhere on the Potomac, right? We're going to assume the debts, and the South is going to have a capital. You know, and, and, you know the South is going to get the capital in, in somewhere in its region. Okay, most people know that when they've read early American history. What they don't know is that in the next big debate, there was a giant uh, debate over a central bank bill, and Washington was actually going to veto the bill, right? But he decided not to because he wanted to move the capital. He wanted to place the location of the capital not within the um, defined area along the uh, the Virginia borders, uh, but a little closer to his property in Alexandria. So the actual reason why the Capitol is, is where it's located is because President Washington basically sold out. He said, all right, I won't veto the bank bill and we'll put the Capitol next to my plantation. Right. And, and this is still true. If you go to Washington, D.C., an enormous amount of land is taken up by Mount Vernon. Uh, he still got this very scenic highway named after you know President Washington. And it's really funny. It's, it's it, 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 this was seen as pretty big cronies in back of the day. But, yeah, Washington wanted he said, look, I'm going to be in charge of this. This country, I you know, I, I want a little sweetener for for all the effort I put in. That is hilarious. I did not know that, and so yeah. he's yeah. kind of viewed as like the pure politician by by many. <laughs> so, yeah, go, yeah. Well, here it is. He was an enormous land speculator, along with many many other individuals, and so he himself was not above um, all the you know above various crony policies. Though I do think his presidency is ultimately saved i'm not a fan of many of his policies but i think it's ultimately saved and it's one of the great presidencies for the sole fact that he stepped down he had after the revolution he could have become a dictator if he wanted to you know he could have stated you know basically remain president 
and sort of turn the office into a quasi dictatorship, but he did not. So for that, for those actions, I, I, I give him high marks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, obviously, but but it, it, it's something like that. And see, that's that's a great story because that's a story that today, um, or at any period of, period of history, if it's just not, if you don't think about why why is this here and what what, what happened there, and you know, you, there's a lot of ways to massage a story like that to make it be like, well, Washington had bad health and he couldn't ride around, and you, you could you could yeah. frame it just slightly different and go, it was an innocent thing that would you know. And so uh, yeah. I don't harp on that too long, but I think those are the types of that's the problem I think when, when studying cronyism is that it, it's really hard to always to understand 30,000 foot of, of what everyone's motivations are. And so um, that's why I was asking the question early on, because it, it seems like a tall order order to, to look through all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, and this is, this is the, di the, the, the difficult pro uh, problem because a lot of historians you know, just push for this public interest motivation. And it was only recently, at least I, I found out a couple of years ago, someone, you know, new book on the beginning of the of the of the country's founding is called the First Congress, um, and he himself is sort of a public interest historian. He mentions this the story, and I, I immediately had to go look for more information. He sort of mentions it as a well, it, it, this just happened, but you know, we can look past it. And you think, well, I actually, no, I'm actually a little interested into you know <laughs> this particular motivation of of George Washington, and and yeah, so it's it makes the it makes the challenge it makes the task tough, but it's still something that needs to be done. Yeah, and that I'm glad you brought that up because the final question I have for you is writing a book like this, how do you go through the process for the listener's benefit of determining what evidence is relevant, what's not, how much do you have to cut out because of spacing requirements? Because I think um I've read a decent amount of you know biographies and memoirs and history books. And, and I'm I'm always curious, um, if it's an event I happen to know a little bit about, I'm always curious, okay, well. Why did they not include this portion or why did they omit that? And the author's view of history and what's important on obviously is shaping what's being written. So maybe unpack for our listeners how you try to go through this process and, and present the facts for them. It's a great question. Uh, the, the short answer is blood, sweat, and tears. Um, <laughs> but the more honest answer is just one, you've got to read a lot. When you think you've read everything, you've got to read more. I'm actually working on sort of the follow-up book to this, covering the next leg of American history, and I'm currently working on cronyism in the, in, behind the Federal Reserve. And so, just when I think I've read everything on that, there's always more. So you got to read. You got to. You got to. Um, you got to read a lot. You also have to take a lot of notes, and it's a it's a tough process uh, deciding what fits in, what little crony story fits in. What doesn't fit in? At what point does it distract from the overall narrative? Right, you don't want so many things going on that it then doesn't doesn't flow well. You know, writing a book in many ways is uh, like directing a, a movie. Right, mm -hmm. you're gonna have to write multiple drafts. Um, you're gonna have to take multiple shots of a scene. Sometimes an entire shot, entire side stories that get you know left on the cutting room floor, they don't make it. Now, the, the original page count for this book was about 550 pages. And I had to cut that down to, at least in the Microsoft Word form, it was about 350. So it's about 200 pages. And a lot of that was just simply cleaning up writing. Uh, but it was also streamlining certain things and, and, or explaining, you know, taking things out, explaining some things a little more. And it's, it's really about the overall story you're trying to tell. You don't just jump in and start looking for every little crony story or else you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to be able to 
synthesize your ideas into, into a convincing narrative. It's about, okay, what are you trying to tell? Right? What's the broad story you're trying to tell? And that comes about through a lot of reading, a lot of uh, research, initial drafts. And then how does everything else kind of tell that story? And it, 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 it's a tough process. It's, it's a lot of editing. It's a, multiple drafts. It's, it's not easy. And, and I think I'll, I'll leave the listeners with this, is that that's one of the things that being in the world that we're in, we have the advantage that we can't go to, you know, read everything that you've read, of course, but um, we can go read some of these stories and these anecdotes, and you can build up a decent um, library of your own stuff, as you will, but just reading these snippets, because a lot of the things I imagine you're, you're reading is um, you know, letters between people, official documents. It's all there for us to read. Now, putting together the, the, the full arc and the full narrative is probably beyond our scope, but we do have the benefit of that. And so it's good. It's good to hear you talk about that because I think too many people go, Oh, I can never understand all of this. But what I love about books like these is, is getting them, reading them and then reading the footnotes and then going and reading some of those other stories that were left out or more, uh, more in depth. Because then you can start going, well, huh? I didn't really, like you said about the Washington story. Hmm. Let's dig into that a little bit deeper. So hopefully uh, listeners go check out your book. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes, of course, and uh, can dig in for more. So you mentioned you have more books coming up. Uh, as you move ahead in history, I'm sure it's going to be much harder to determine what doesn't make the cut because it's just corruption everywhere. So good good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it, it'll be tough. And someone mentioned on Twitter, when you get to the modern era, you're going to have to write about Nancy Pelosi and cronyism. And I said that, well... Uh, that itself might be a multi-book series. You know? <laughs> That'd be your magnum opus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, where do you want to point people to? Twitter, the book, where else? Twitter, uh, so you can you can find the book Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in Early America on Amazon, right? You just, it's, it's, it's easy to find. There are audio books. Uh, there, there's, there, there's an ebook. So there's, there's many ways to access it. There's also a podcast, uh, not a, a podcast or a really podcast series, about 10 episodes or so. On the book, the Liberty versus Power podcast, uh, published by the Mises Institute, uh, hosted by myself and Phil Bishop. Um, and you, if you're interested in more of my ideas, general economic forecasting, modern day cronyism, or just anything related to that, you can follow me at Dr. Patrick Newman um, on Twitter, um, Instagram, and all that stuff. Okay, great. And we'll link to all that at the show notes at RyanRaySenior.com. Okay, Dr. Newman, thank you so much for your time today. We really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, there you go. Dr. Patrick Newman, cronyism, capitalism. I think it is a little bit of a misnomer how we talk about it. Curious your thoughts in the show notes, not the show notes, the newsletter, ridenracingcom slash newsletter, and we'll talk real soon.